Founded by Logan Esterling, Reed Design is pushing the boundaries of oboe and English horn reed making. They take the knowledge they've collected from hundreds of reeds and, with the power of machine learning, derive patterns and trends that accurately predict the characteristics of finished reeds while early in the sorting process. The result is quality reeds with characteristics you can count on. Using their products will save you valuable time and let you get back to what you love, making music. Visit www.reeddesign.io to learn more. That's R-E-E-D-E-S-I-G-N dot I-O. Chemical City Double Reeds is a full-service double reed shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Reed Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH, all caps, no spaces. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at chemicalcityreads.com. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Reed Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. It's been so long. It's been a minute. <laughs> it's been 36 hours. Are you sick of me yet? No. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> Are you sick of me? I'm not sick of you, but I am very looking forward to recording this dish. And then when it's over, it is officially fall in Washington state. We've got like highs of 72, which to me is officially soup weather. Mm. And I got all the fixings to make soup for lunch and I'm so ready. Soup and then make a nap. And I think I've earned, you know, big bowl of soup, big nap. It's the weekend after tour. Like, yeah, we need some rest and recuperation time. Because that was a grueling week. That was, (laughs) I think, by far the hardest thing I've ever done. We had two nights where we only got four hours of sleep Mm -hmm. because of the travel schedule. Mm -hmm. I don't know how many hours in the car. Honestly, probably 30. Yeah. It was equal parts exhausting and inspiring. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's give the rundown for for our listeners. What was this tour? Where'd we go? Tell them all about it. So the last two weeks have been spent recording our Double Reed Dish Consortium album, which we recorded at Washington State, where Jackie works, where she has access to a world-class recording studio and recording engineer. Um, and it was six hours a, a day for five days of recording and editing. So when we couldn't play anymore, we edited. <laughs> um, so just really intense focus and listening and just hours with the instrument on your face. And that Friday in the evening, when we were done with our recording and editing, we played a recital. <laughs> 
at Washington State. Because we just hadn't done enough that week. (laughs) And then we uh, flew to Kansas City and used Kansas City as our home base where we uh, got to give concerts and master classes um, at the University of Kansas, the University of Arkansas, the University of Iowa, and the University of Missouri, Kansas City. So it was just the most intense thing I have ever done, but one of the most rewarding things I have ever done. And actually um, coming out the other side of it, I'm actually feeling really inspired and motivated to plan bigger things for myself because Mm -hmm. this was a really big thing. Yeah. This was a really ambitious task and I I enjoyed it so much and I wasn't as afraid as I thought I would be mm. um, and I wasn't as nervous as I thought I would be. So now I'm actually um, getting some ideas and uh, looking into like dreaming bigger for mm-hmm. myself. Yeah, it was really cool because this was always the plan. Like when we started thinking about this, because now that I'm at WSU, I knew I did have these resources and it was always, yeah, we'll do the consortium, we'll commission these pieces and we'll record them and we'll tour them. And so it was just kind of like we set out to do, yeah, I agree, this kind of gigantic thing with multiple components and Mm -hmm. a several year project. And then we just did it. And we did it. It was really cool to be like, yeah, everything we said we wanted to do, we went and just did. Uh, even and that summer, we'll play those works at IDRS and kind of do a preview yeah. of like every single thing. Um, I have a tab on my OneDrive that when we kind of laid out the outline of what this project was going to be, and we just treated them like hurdles on a track, and we cleared the race. And it's really cool yeah. to look back and be like, yeah, we did all that. It wasn't just something that we said. Hey, maybe we'll do. Right. Um, because it would have been easy for it. Yes, it would have been easy for it to be too big. Right. Um, to but we just ate the elephant one bite at a time. And yeah, I'm super psyched about that. Um, so the thing that struck me, just kind of thinking back over the course of the tour at WSU, the the recital felt like a total trip because we'd spent all this time recording the album and you record it in sections, right? Mm-hmm. You're like, okay, well, now we're, we're going to record bars one through 28. Now we're going to record bars 29 through 35, whatever it is. And then when you're done with a piece, you move on to another piece. And so on the one hand, we had been spending 30 hours over the last week with this repertoire. On the other hand, time did not allow for full runs of movements and there were some pieces that we hadn't thought of since monday and so it was this weird like oh yeah i know this piece like the back of my hand and yet also this feels like being a roller coaster on the tracks of like whoa oh yeah this part oh, okay here we go oh oh and like refamiliarizing these pieces in a recital setting um, and I just remember like being really happy with the performance, but having the excitement of kind of hanging on for dear life on that first recital because it felt so different from the recording experience. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we had the pleasure of collaborating with your colleagues at WSU, Fabio Manchetti on piano and Aaron Aguilé on voice. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a real pleasure. 
Um, and then when we went to the University of Kansas, we got to work with the double read students in master classes, mm-hmm. uh, the students of Eric Stomberg and Margaret Marco and play in their gorgeous hall. Yeah, that was a really beautiful, beautiful hall. hall. felt so spoiled mm-hmm. to get to mm-hmm. be there. <laughs> And then we went to the University of Arkansas, where we did the same and got to spend some time with Tess Delaplane and Leah Uribe and their students. And we also got to give an entrepreneurial lecture that you and I have been cooking up. You want to tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So the presentation is called Guide Your Career with Purpose. And we basically um, have been taking this idea that we've been harping on on the podcast of if you view the field as, or the goal of the field as homogeneity, where we're all doing the same thing, then it's unfortunately ultra competitive with more supply than demand. But if you view you as an individual with a unique perspective and individual assets and perspectives to bring to the table, then you have something that you alone can contribute and you can chart a path that only you can fill creating opportunities that only you can do. And so the whole point of the presentation is a set of reflection exercises to walk you through starting to at least find those uniquenesses within you, your own priorities, and then how those could be articulated into a mission statement and a strategic plan that more readily lends itself to professional activity. And um, yeah, it was the first time we got to kind of launch it in front of an audience. And it was, again, it was really cool watching this thing, this idea come to fruition. Um, So that was really fantastic. And if you're ever interested in having double double read dish do Uh, this presentation with you and your students, or, you know, if you feel that it might be appropriate for your school, just send us an email or a direct message. We'd love to work something out. Doubleredish.com or at (laughs) gmail.com. So then we went to the University of Iowa. And I have to say the moment that we crossed the border into Iowa, Jackie's eyes turned into hearts. (laughs) She, it was like there were cartoon birds just flitting and landing on her shoulders. And she started spinning in the Alps as if she were in the sound of music. It's true. I I loved my time as a student at the University of Iowa and up till coming to WSU, I have always been within a reasonable driving distance. And so at least once in an academic year, I'd come back and take a lesson with Benjamin. I'd come to a football game. I'd watch a concert. That campus has been an integral part of me and that the Voxman School of Music has been an integral part of me. I even married into an Iowa music family. There's literally pictures of my father-in-law backstage in their recital hall. Like I, I bleed black and gold. I can't help it. And so being back there was always special to me. And um, it was the one place where afterwards our travel schedule allowed for us to really hang out with our hosts Mm-hmm. and just enjoy a meal and time talking. And for that to be with my teacher, Benjamin Quelio made it all that much more special just to really carve out time with him to catch up and, you know, get the talk shop. 
at one point the table started making fun of us because we were just in our own little world talking about, oh, do you, well, do you think I need a new vocal hearing my instrument? What do you think? Blah, blah, blah. No, I, but I think your reads could be a little bit more like blah because I heard such and such and it was, it was good. I always love stepping back into that student learner role oh, with totally. him. Yeah. And, and of course, many thanks to the ever lovely Courtney Miller for letting me work with her amazing studio in a masterclass and for hanging out. That was just the best. And then we ended the tour at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. We got to give a concert at the Diastole Scholar Center, which was like the coolest venue cool. ever. It was so cool. It was like a converted home that had been like just transformed into an art gallery with a performance space. Yeah. And the audience was so close. It was intimate. It felt like um, how Alicia Lawyer described her experience yes. with like chamber salon performances in Europe yes. where they're very close and it's a social thing. And it's, there's not this big separation between an active uh, performer and a passive audience. It was, an interaction. I loved it. I found myself going like, Oh God, what, what spaces could be something like this where mm -hmm. I am. And, uh, it was just so comfy in there. I found that I played really well. Cause yeah. it just felt so like, Oh, and there was this really nice, uh, air conditioning vent blowing on me. So I never got too hot. Oh, that must've been nice. I can't say <laughs> the same. <laughs> In fact, I was like, oh gosh, I am sweating and they're like two feet away. They can definitely see me sweating in a way that they can't. So. I was like, ah, this cool breeze. Well, and the cool thing about that performance is it had to be a little bit earlier um, because of our host schedule. And so you, Fabio and I got to go out on the town that night and kind of celebrate and have dinner and cheers to everything that had been accomplished in the last two weeks, which is a really nice way to just put a bow on everything. I'm really proud of us. Me too. Wow, we're just so fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> Consider buying your processed oboe and bassoon cane from those friendly folks over at Barton Cane. Processed with care and precision for your everyday reed-making needs. Take the pain and injury out of reed-making by letting Barton Kane do the hard, repetitive, boring stuff. Free up time for practicing happy hours, hikes, baking, and spending time with friends and family. Barton Kane here for you. Visit www.bartonkane.com. Specializing in the finest assortment of oboes, clarinets, bassoons, and their accessories, RDG Woodwinds serves musicians around the world. Their employees are all professional musicians who have a deep knowledge of the products that they sell. RDG's repair shop has an international reputation with a combined 100 plus years of service among the five repair technicians. Plain and simple, RDG provides excellent products and fabulous customer service. Visit them at rdgwoodwinds.com. They look forward to working with you. We are delighted to welcome bassoonist and composer John Steinmetz to Double Reed Dish. Welcome, John. 
Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here with you both. This is a real honor. Oh, it's our honor completely. Can you start by telling us how you started playing the bassoon? Yeah, I was uh, in elementary school playing the clarinet. And I think I chose that because a friend of mine was going to play the clarinet. I don't think I knew anything about anything. And then in the sixth grade, I had to have braces on my teeth. And the orthodontist said, you can't play that clarinet. That's going to push out everything I'm trying to push in. So I wanted to pick a different instrument. And this part's a little fuzzy. I narrowed it down to horn and bassoon. We must have had a record of the instruments of the orchestra or something. And uh, I was not convinced that it wouldn't hurt to play the horn with braces, even though the orthodontist said, no, that's not going to hurt. I didn't believe them. So I chose the bassoon. And it it turned out to be a perfect choice because uh, I was growing, growing up in Fresno, California, which had great music programs, great support for kids, and not a lot of bassoon players. So I had lots of opportunities to learn by playing. And even though I was not good about practicing, they still needed me. So I had, was able to keep learning. So it was a good choice. Can you talk us through embarking on your path as a professional musician? When did you decide you wanted to pursue music as a career and just kind of walk us through your training and educational journey? When I first went to college, I thought I was going to be a high school music director, high school music teacher, like a band director. And just gradually over time, my idea changed about that. And I don't remember the steps of it. It was kind of a fuzzy, messy process. But um, looking back and talking about it with a friend, I realized that probably my initial choice was because the best musicians I knew at that time were high school music teachers. So I wanted to be like them. And then I started meeting some other people who were doing other things. I went to Fresno State College, which is now Cal State University, Fresno, for two years. So I still lived at home and was going to school there. And then through um, a, a girlfriend of that time, found out about a brand new school that was going to go, uh, that was going to open up called California Institute of the Arts. And I loved the concept of this school. It seemed really interesting to me. And I went down there and auditioned. And to my great surprise, I got into this school. It's outside of Los Angeles. And there I met these really amazing musicians who were playing at a level that I had never heard before and who were interested in music from everywhere, all over the world. There was a lot of new music going on there, first of all, and I knew a little tiny bit about it, but not very much. But there were also teachers from Ghana and Java and Bali and both the North and South Indian classical traditions from India mm -hmm. and people who were students or faculty who were interested in lots of other things. Mm -hmm. um, and that whole experience kind of blew my mind I didn't know there were so many kinds of music in the world I didn't know about all the different possibilities for kinds of musical composition or ways of performing and uh, it was a place where I could throw myself into a lot of that and so gradually I started 
drifting toward the idea of being a performer. I was also interested in composing at that time, but that looked way too hard to me to make a living as as a composer. And so I settled on being a performer. And I still didn't know what that meant when I was in college, but I, I drifted out of college into the freelance scene in Los Angeles and very slowly, very gradually got some work. Started out playing a lot of church jobs. Um, I did audition for the Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra and I didn't get in. And then I didn't get in again when they had another audition. And then I got in there the third time I tried. And I thought that was going to open up the world to me. What it did was give me chances to play with very high level musicians in a demanding situation. And so I learned a lot from the people in that orchestra. And it also did bring some other opportunities with it. Um, I think I had my first experience playing in the studios when that orchestra got hired to play for a movie. That wasn't the way it was usually done, but it did happen once. And I thought, oh, good, this will start my studio career up. But that didn't happen that way. Um, just very slowly and gradually, I started getting opportunities to play in the studios. And maybe more importantly, the orchestra got taken on tour with a German conductor named Helmut Rilling, who was a Bach expert, and his choir from Germany playing the B minor mass in a dozen halls around this country. And that was another mind-blowing experience. I'd never performed, I'd played these Bach oratorios before, but I'd never played with a conductor who was so knowledgeable about the music. He conducted the whole B minor mass from memory. He knew every entrance. He also knew so much about the history and about the performance practice of the time. And I'd never heard a choir singing in such a way that I could understand every word they said. That also amazed me. And so that became a huge influence and led to an invitation to participate in the Oregon Bach Festival, which I did for a little over 30 years. Um, Brilling was the music director there, and I learned a ton from that. Um, now I think I've gotten off the subject, but this sort of gradual groping and blundering and stumbling from one thing to another, mostly through luck, I think, led to being able to make a living as a performing musician, as a freelancer. So I never had a full-time job with any organization, but was always working for lots of different employers during the year. In fact, our uh, the guy who, who does our taxes used to joke that he he worked for a lot of musicians and he was going to have a contest weighing the W-2s from all the different musicians yeah. to see who had the biggest stack because it was it was customary here for people to work for lots of different people. And that's what my life was like. And it made, it made things interesting because I got to do lots of different things. When did you start... So you had a very prolific and successful performing career. When did you start um, transitioning, or maybe transitioning is the wrong word, but, you know, moving your, expanding your interests into composing? Well, I was always interested in composing kind of as a hobby. I was, I had a friend with whom I would compose some things in junior high, little joking pieces and in high school, I wrote a couple of pieces. I had this um, high school band director there was 
somebody who encouraged students to compose if they wanted to. And looking back, I realized that the greatest gift was that he treated that like it was a normal thing. Yeah, sure, you want to write something? That's fine. And then he would have the band play it. So I wrote something for the jazz band, and I wrote a couple of things for the concert band, and he performed them. And other people did that too. So I learned a little bit from doing that. When I went away to CalArts, I didn't think of myself as a composer. I thought of myself as a performer. But a big transition was that some other composers who I thought of as being real composers because they were composition majors invited me to join them in a project that involved composing music for dancers. There was a big dance program at CalArts and they always needed music. And a number of my friends made some money accompanying dance classes and then they would meet the dancers and the dancers all had to choreograph things. And so the composers would write music for their their pieces and this group of composers and dancers was forming a group and they wanted me to be part of that group and I was bowled over by this I had already done a couple of things for dancers and just loved that opportunity and that really helped me as a composer because I could write things I could try different experiments to see how they would work and I could feel safe doing that because I knew that the audience would be paying attention to the dancers. That's what would be the the focus of attention. And so I learned some things about composing from doing that. Um, But it stayed a hobby in the background. I would write one or two pieces a year until, um, until after the year 2000, I was writing a, working on a bassoon concerto or I wanted to work on a bassoon concerto. And I found myself contacting people who were involved with orchestras to see if they would co-commission this piece, because I needed, I knew I needed uh, to get a few orchestras together to do it. So there'd be a deadline. And so there'd be a little money from this project because it was so big. And I I was surprised to find myself in a way soliciting work as a composer because I had told myself I wasn't going to do that. And here I was doing it. That's when I I realized something had changed. It had changed while I wasn't looking, I guess. And composing had become a more important thing for me. And so after that, I was a little more willing to think of myself as a composer instead of as a hobbyist. I want to ask you about a couple of your specific works. You're, I mean, you have a ton of repertoire and it's so commonly played and commonly recorded. I'm sure the pieces I'll choose to ask about is not like um, the listeners would probably also have their own requests and whatnot. But um, your most special piece to me is the Sonata. And um, I, yeah, I guess I'd love to hear about that piece's inception conception um that that piece resonates a lot with me and i know with a lot of other people it's very special within the bassoon repertoire so can we just hear a little bit about the birth and journey of the bassoon sonata yeah thank you for asking about that thank you for those words about it it's you know it's a surprise to me i just feel very lucky that the music that showed up that was powerful for me has also been powerful for other people. That's one of the pleasures of doing composing and performing too, is that 
sometimes you get to find out that something that's meaningful to you is meaningful to other people. Um, I was a member of that group of composers and choreographers. It was called Footnote. And we were planning a performance. And by that time, or at least for that event, it was a really small group. It was just two musicians and one dancer. And I had been thinking about some ideas for a piece for bassoon and piano. And the other musician was a pianist. And I'd worked with him a lot. And so I started collecting some ideas and starting work on this piece. And then that tour got canceled. And I just set all that aside. And a year or two later, the tour got reactivated and looked like it was going to happen. And so I I started working on the piece again. And this was one of many examples about how I need a deadline in order to get something finished that um, I have not, I've hardly ever been one of those composers that just gets obsessed by an idea and has to compose every day or somebody who thinks of themselves as a composer and therefore composes every day. For me, there needs to be something prodding me to get it done most of the time. Um, and there were a number of influences on this piece. I suppose at the bottom of it was that I wanted to write something that would be powerfully emotional. And I suppose that that speaks to why it is meaningful to bassoonists. I felt at that time, and this was a time when I didn't know very much of the repertory, but the pieces I knew were often um, kind of polite and genteel or even a little bit uh, comic or something like that. And I was jealous of other musicians who had this extremely emotional, powerful repertory. And at the time I was thinking about things like the Brahms clarinet sonatas or the Messian quartet for the end of time. And I was really jealous of the singers who had all those Schubert songs to sing that are so full of feeling. And so I wanted to write something that somehow would be full of feeling. Um, I had attended a summertime concert by a shakuhachi player. And I think I'd heard shakuhachi recordings, but I'd never heard one live before. And that music was also very intense and powerful. And there, uh, part of the technique of playing the shakuhachi is to slide between notes to do glissandi, which, you know, don't happen so often on Western wind instruments. Mm-hmm. And I was really struck with all the feeling that exists in between the notes where we as bassoonists don't usually go. And I thought, well, let's see what what could happen with that. So it wasn't so much that I wanted to imitate Shakuhachi music, but that I wanted to try and get at the expressive power that they were able to get at that seemed to me to lie in between the notes. And so that's where the glissandos in the first movement came from. Um and I, I made them the easiest ones that I could find so that, so that I could play it. I wasn't, uh, you know, going to somebody's book about how to glissando between every note or anything like that. Just looking for ones that were easy to play expressively. Mm-hmm. The second movement is an imitation of a Renaissance piece that I had played with a group that I really enjoyed. 
it was a group that met over dinner and just kept playing over the years, a group of low instruments. And the violist in that group had found a piece called Browning by a composer named Elway Bevan. And our group played it an octave lower than written on viola, bassoon, and bass. And I, it's just a fantastic piece. I, I, I was a little surprised that it seemed to be obscure because it was so much fun to play. And um, it's like a set of variations where an eight-bar theme repeats over and over again, and then other music gets put on top of the theme. So like a like a ground bass or a, some other pieces like that, except that the theme moves from part to part. So everybody gets a chance to play the theme and everybody gets a chance to play the variations. And so it seemed like a fun format. So I used that same theme and wrote that same kind of piece, even using some of the uh, approaches that Elway Bevan used, except that the harmonies are a little bit spicier like you know Stravinsky or something like that what gave me that idea I have no idea except that while I was working on this piece I forget about this sometimes sometimes you get a sign um, I was teaching at that time at the University of Redlands I was a you know a part-time lecturer and uh, I had to stay overnight there in order to get all the teaching done so I was spending a little time in the music library and I was wandering around just looking at things randomly. And this book kind of fell into my hands uh, off the shelf. And it was a book of English songs. And it opened to the page with the melody for that Browning that showed what the words were, which I didn't know before. Much later, I found out it was a drinking song. It's. It seems to be about going into the woods to pick walnuts in the time when walnuts are ripe. But somebody told me it was really a drinking song. Um, anyway, I I I remember feeling at the time like, oh, okay, I guess I guess I really do need to do something with this melody because here it is, jumping into my hands in this way. It was a very unusual experience. I don't have a lot of experiences like that. Um. The last movement of the sonata is uh, another approach to making very emotional music. And this one started with a sequence of chords. I would just sit up late at night at the piano playing these simple chords and trying to see what chord should come after what other chord. And I didn't really know what I was making out of it until I had a collection of chords in an order, and then I wrote a melody to go on the top of it. But I know that um, the violin and cello solos from the quartet from the end of time were an influence just because those are pieces where the piano part is very simple and the melody is very long and and arching. Um, but another influence was the... Uh, the kind of singing that jazz, jazz singers do when they're singing a ballad, where they're very free with the time, where the band is playing strictly, but the singer will be very free with the melody. And so I looked for a way, I guess I just kind of made up a way for the sequence of chords to be set and the tempo to be steady but the bassoon player to be able to play the given notes in the right order, but to have some freedom about 
how they move from one note to another the way that jazz singer would. So that I think that's all the stew of influences that are in there. And it was really only when I was done uh, that I realized that every part of it starts with the same two-note A and C chord. It starts and ends with that. I, I wasn't thinking when I was composing, oh, I need to have a unifying element here. Mm-hmm. But the music grew that way. And it really taught me something about the way we talk about music. I mean, I'm sure there are composers who strategize and say, okay, let me create a motif, and now I'm going to weave that through the whole piece. But I'm sure that other, that other composers have my experience, where the material develops while you're paying attention to it, and it grows these connections of itself, rather than the way we usually talk about it in program notes. Um which makes it seem all um, pre-thought out or a logical kind of a thing. There's definitely logic in music, but it's kind of integral to the emotional side too. They go together, and in my experience. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe one other thing about the sonata is that when I got together with the pianist to to start rehearsing the piece before the first performance we were going to do, I still had four chunks of music and I didn't know how they would should all fit together. And I didn't know what the order should be. I had a hunch. I wanted to end with the lament, but I wasn't sure if that was okay to end with a slow movement. And uh, there were two, two chunks of music that now form the prelude that during the course of rehearsing with the pianist and with his encouragement, I, I put those two together. I realized, okay, those belong together and then would come the browning, and then would come the lament. And he was very reassuring, said, yeah, of course you can end with that. Why not? Um, But that's how not sure I was about putting that off, how how it would work, how it would be put together. And that's been my experience with most everything I've written. I've been, I've tried to do the best I can, but I'm not sure until I hear it, hear people play it. Maybe sometimes it takes a few years of having people say, yeah, I think this is okay for me to actually believe it. Yeah, I really love what you said about the process being more organic than what we might glean from program notes. Um, Because, you know, from my personal experience, I look at the the continuity and the process and it looks very overwhelming from the outside like wow that's so complicated it must be so difficult I don't think I could ever do that um and it's in a way reassuring to hear that it it doesn't have to be like that it can be more um as it comes and I'd love to hear more about your creative process and how you welcome those ideas and then develop them into a cohesive piece? It's a little bit different every time. Um, Sometimes I think I know what kind of piece I want to write. There was one time I wanted to write a piece and I thought, well, it should have three big movements to it. And ended up being 10 short movements. It just came out completely differently from what I thought I was going to do. Sometimes I have um, an idea in mind, maybe an image or a... Uh, an agenda and other times I don't. So that, that will really affect the way the piece forms. 
But I would think in general, I start by looking for some sounds that seem to have some potential. Um, so I'll often do that part at the piano. And I'm not a pianist, but I'll look for chords or scraps of melody or rhythmic gestures. And sometimes I'll do this just sitting down, like thinking of a shape, um, uh, like a melodic shape or something. Um, and so I'll get kind of a notebook full of scraps. And then some of those will seem to be promising in some way that I can't put my finger on. Either they seem like they have a little feeling to them or um, some kind of freshness, maybe. Um, it it feels a little bit like the next part is scattering compost on these various scraps and then seeing which ones will start to grow. Mm-hmm. I think with that, what that really means is I start messing around with them to see, well, what Maybe one question is, well, if this is going to be a thing, what would be after this thing or how would it extend? And some things grow and some things wither. Um, but I hope to have then a collection of of stuff. Sometimes it's apparent pretty early, like, oh, these things belong together. They're going to be in a movement. And these things over here, they are something else. They're going to be in another movement or maybe not turn up. Every so often I'll be working on something and, well, for instance, in um, I was working on a piece that ended up being called Simple Pleasures. No, that's not the name of it. <laughs> that's the name that somebody got it confused with. I've lost the name. Well, it's a piece for uh, oboe, bassoon, violin, cello, and harpsichord. It was a commission for a particular series. And um, I had some ideas that I wanted to put into this piece, both musical and not musical, like verbal ideas that, that were informing the music. And it was pretty earnest. It was, it was a very uh, emotional kind of a piece. And then some little silly ideas started coming to mind. And I just said, oh, get away from me. I have this whole comic side. I love to hear people laugh. I like writing things that are funny, but I didn't want it to be part of that piece. It doesn't seem right. And this little goofy idea kept coming back, just nagging at me. I think I maybe even wrote it down and said, okay, now get out of here. I'm working on something else. But finally I gave in and I put a funny movement into that piece. That's sort of a, I don't know, a comical, um, almost a parody of what a group like that might play. Um, really pretty silly. And um, and it became part of it. And it, and afterwards I could see, oh yeah, that does fit in. And it maybe is needed to lighten the weightiness so that then the next very emotional part can resonate more. But this is all the, that kind of thinking was really an afterthought. So I'm, I guess I'm bringing this up to say that something, sometimes something will start nagging at me and I don't even think it's a good idea. And I try to resist it. And then I just have to give up because it keeps coming at me. Sounds like my relationship to cheese. Yeah. It's very similar. (laughs) Sometimes you just have to give in. The thing, the one difference is with cheese, you're never done. Whereas with a piece, finally there's a place where you have to turn it over to the performers and it becomes their problem. Yeah, it's a never-ending love affair with cheese. Yeah, 
good news, bad news, right? <laughs> uh, the other piece I wanted to ask you about is the a newer piece uh, that I just heard at IDRS, um, played by Ann Shoemaker, What Can I Do? And um, I, I thought this piece was really interesting because it imbibes humor, as you referenced. Um, but the the premise uh, kind of struck me, at least as a listener, um, as drawing upon this this question that I've kind of been a little haunted by, and increasingly so in recent times. Of you know, what does the bassoon matter when people don't have clean drinking water or, you know, um, access to education or literacy or any of these things that we can say that are tremendously important and um, worrying about the futility of art for those of us who want to be engaged and relevant in the present day and how do these two things meet the road and and where is it self-indulgence and where is art important to the world and it's i i don't know that the simplicity of one voice and one bassoon seemed so um poignant for the questions being asked and I would love to hear again just about the inspiration and conception and maybe if writing the piece helped you grapple with those questions at all. Yeah, great questions. Well, first of all, I have to say that Anne's performance did so much for that piece that she brought a kind of vulnerability to the to the speaking of the words mm-hmm. that I found very moving and and her playing I already knew is so beautiful that it brings a kind of resonance to the to the message that was just you know something that makes a composer really happy um this is one of the few pieces that i wrote even though there wasn't a deadline so this was from last year in 2021 um all the kinds of questions that you're bringing up were bugging me and uh, especially this question about climate change is what, and particularly the question of what is there that I as a musician can do? There are lots of things I can do as a human being, the kind of activism that other people are doing, for instance. But is there something that, that we as musicians can do that to use our abilities as musicians? And so I thought, well, I don't, I don't know, but maybe I'll try writing something to see if that can be some kind of contribution. Uh, and um, I had in mind that it, that the player would talk and play. And I knew right away that I didn't want the talking to be about the stuff that we hear all the time, about the dire happenings in the world, about the danger that we're in, about the stuff that's going wrong. Um, and I, I think that title came to me pretty quickly. If I remember, this was one, this was maybe one of the times where I had the title first, and that 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 title, "What Can I Do," was the was what the piece was trying to wrestle with. What can I do as a musician? What can a human being do at a time when it seems like an all hands on deck moment, but we're not always sure where the deck is or what we should do with our hands, and um, 
And I don't really remember how the humor came into it. It's something I'm I'm really grateful it happened that way, and I just can't remember uh, how it appeared. But it but for those who haven't heard it, it starts out being a little bit funny about the whole idea of a bassoonist trying to do something about climate change. And then it becomes more sincere and earnest, but it feels to me like the laughing that we do at the beginning helps to clear the air for that mm-hmm. sincerity. And I I noticed that before. I mean, years ago, I noticed how that can work. Um, again, not because I planned anything, but because I made a big mistake in a concert. I was doing a bassoon ensemble concert one time, and it was for a, it was actually for a Double Reed Society conference. And I had this joke that I really wanted to tell that was an insider joke that only double read players would understand. And so I told this joke and it got a good laugh and I was really happy. And then I, then only then did I look at what the next piece was. And I realized the next piece was the most serious piece that we were going to play. It was a chorale by Bach called Come Sweet Death. So I just got everybody laughing, and now I have to introduce this piece. And I thought, whoa, wow, I really blew that. It was yeah. it just felt so horrible. And afterwards, a number of people came up to me and said that that chorale had been so powerful for them. And thinking back, I, I suspected that sort of getting all the willies out by laughing then put people in, a, in an open-hearted state to to get what Bach was sending in that chorale. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so so it wasn't surprising to me decades later when um, having something funny at the beginning of a piece helps the serious part that comes later. And I had thought about this stuff, Jackie, because I'd, I'd been working for years on an article called Musical Activism that was ac- asking one of the questions you asked, which is, what can we as musicians do? to um, to help with the issues that are not musical in the world. And it was a hard thing for me to write, to really think through, because there's so much glib talk about how music's going to save the world or music makes people better. And it was clear to me from my experience as a musician that mu- music, there's no guarantee that being a musician is going to make you a better person. And there's no guarantee that bringing music to a situation is going to make anything better. But at the same time, music is uh, a a vehicle for human intention, and it's human intention made into sound. Um, So if we're clear about our intentions, at least with ourselves, and if we're working with the rest of the situation, not just the music, then there's some chance that the intentions in the music can have some impact beyond the musical experience. But but you, you have to want to work it that way, I think. Anyway, so to come back to what can I do, that that was following finally finishing and publishing that article and um, now thinking, well, I get, maybe I want to try doing something. So um, let's see what else I can remember. The musical ideas in it sort of came up and I just tried to work with them and I was really trying hard not to worry too much if I had the perfect musical idea, just wanted something that would work with the text. I wrote the text first and then fit the music and then adjusted the text to 
then everything had to get adjusted, but it started with the words. And uh, I stumbled across a kind of fairly cheerful sounding musical idea. And I thought that might be a good idea to have that cheerfulness be anchoring this piece. So it wouldn't be at a gloom and doom piece. And then there's one place where the text is talking about wisdom from, from many wise people over thousands of years, things that we've been advised to do over and over again, like take care of yourselves and take care of the places where you live. This is ancient wisdom. It's been repeated many times. And so some of those thoughts are in the text at that time. And at that point, the music slows down a little bit, becomes a little more reflective. Um, but otherwise, it's a the music stays pretty cheerful. And I suppose that's because I wanted to to convey a sense of optimism that, yes, we can do something and we can make a difference here. And there are lots of choices. Like nobody needs to say you must do this because there are so many, many kinds of help that are needed right now. So that's another, I guess, another thing that helped me about writing the piece was just to look at all the different kinds of things that people can do. It's not just one thing. I loved my biggest takeaway from that performance where Anne played so beautifully um, was that when we're filling our minds with music and beauty, we are actively not filling them with greed and corruption and power. Yeah. And that made me actually feel a lot better in the moment. Oh, that's that... a wonderful thing to come away with. See, I yeah. didn't even, this is another thing I like about music because I didn't think about that at all. And, and you came away with something really insightful. Yeah. It felt, it felt that, really cathartic. That's fantastic. Mm -hmm. And I do think that musicians, um, we every so often get a glimpse of, a possible, well, what is it? A kind of radiance that's at the core of people when a whole stage full of people or a small group of people are, even if they don't get along personally, they are getting along in the music when that's happening, mm -hmm. when they're syncing up what they're doing and making this amazing noise that affects the people who are listening. And there's this kind of loop going on between the listeners and the players. Um, you know, we, we experience regularly as musicians, this kind of human connectedness. And, um, I know it's been really good for me to, to experience that. And I think it, it, it points, it's one way of pointing to possibilities that otherwise people have pointed to again for thousands of years. Like we have a lot in common and we can combine our, our abilities and work together to make great things happen. We don't have to be mired the way we are. And yes, we have obstacles and musicians know all about that too. We just have the good fortune to occasionally be put in situations where even when the obstacles are there, we can make something good happen. And maybe that's something we have to offer. And I want to tell one other story, Jackie, to your question about you know, how, how could this making of this music be relevant in some way? Um, because it does seem awful sometimes when, at least in my experience, a lot of the work I did was for people who were very well off, people who were doing just fine. They could afford to come to the concerts and 
hear the operas and um and they were moved by it but i'm not sure that anything we did made people go out and you know change their give their money away to social causes or anything like that mm -hmm. um i had a friend who played in the hong kong philharmonic for a while and she was there during the time when the boat people were escaping from vietnam and she had a journalist friend who was going down to the harbor every day to report on the people who had who were making it, who had arrived in Hong Kong. And my flute player friend kind of despairingly said to the reporter, I mean, shouldn't I be dropping what I'm doing and set my flute down and come down there and help people? And he said, oh, no, no, we need you to be playing that music. That's more important than ever before. Kind of for the reason that that Galit was talking about, that we we don't want to set down the making of beauty at a time like this. We really need that as a what as a counterweight to all this suffering that's going on and to show what's possible, to give people something to live for. All those reasons and more, I think. But maybe maybe we get we feel ourselves questioning this so much because classical music has been so associated with the elite and people with who have means to participate and to listen. Um, so we feel cut off from the people who, who um, are not doing so well. Maybe that's part of it. And so maybe there are things we can do as musicians to get more directly involved with people who don't have so much access to what we're doing. Can you tell us a little bit about your teaching career? What are some of your favorite things about being a teacher? Oh, two good questions. <clears throat> I don't know why, but I've always been fascinated with how people learn things and or don't. Um, so even when I was in high school, I remember I was helping other people learn the guitar. I was playing the, I was still playing the clarinet in the marching band and I was, I think I gave some clarinet lessons and it was just always really interesting to me how, how people learn things, what gets in the way, what you can do about what gets in the way. And then um, again, through luck, I, I, I was part of projects where people were thinking about related things. And I ran into some educators who had really thought about that stuff a lot. I was curious about it, but I wasn't doing research or spending a lot of time with it. But I ran into Doreen Nelson, who came up with a whole new curriculum for ways to teach things at all levels. I, I ran into Tim Galway, who wrote The Inner Game of Tennis and was one of the best teachers I ever saw. I ran into Betty Edwards, who wrote Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain. Um, all, all these people were part of a research project that I got sort of collected for and got to hang out with sometimes. And um, so I learned some things from them. Uh, and then I just kept being curious and interested. I don't, I can't really explain what that is. It must maybe some kind of brain damage. I don't know. Um, um, what was the second part of it? Oh, what you like about teaching? Yeah. Well, I like that. And I I really like helping to facilitate, if I can, you know, I'm not always 
it's not always a good fit, but if I'm, if, if it, the chemistry is good, if I can help facilitate somebody learning something that they want to learn, I've been very lucky that through my teaching career, I've taught people who have already decided that they're interested in something. They're coming to college to learn to play the bassoon or to play chamber music. So, um, I'm not having to convince somebody to learn something that somebody else decided was important. They've decided that it's important. Um, and as you both know, that that's not the end of the story either. When people decide something that's important, then often immediately stuff rises up to get into their way. Um, and so helping them deal with that, helping them learn things that'll help them do better um to meet their own goals and i like everything else i've done i've just done it by groping and blundering um feeling my way to see what might help um maybe this is the time to talk about one thing that i stumbled across that really has impressed me with its ability to unlock some things for people through my whole life of teaching, I've always wondered what helps classical musicians change from people who execute the written instructions correctly into people who make music out of that, because it's really different, of course. You can play all the directions perfectly and still not have it sound much like music. And... um and I, you know, I, I just never felt sure about what would help, except that as people listen to music, as they came into contact with really good musicians, they would sometimes pick up something and get excited about that, that second way of playing. And then, I don't know where this came from, but I started inviting people when they, before they were going to play something to hear it in their imagination and try to hear it the way they really would like to hear it. Maybe they were imagining their ideal self. Maybe there's a recording they love. Maybe they want to imagine their favorite player doing it. Sometimes it helps to sing it out loud. It doesn't matter if you're a good singer, but just sing it as much as you can the way you want it to be. But especially this thing of imagining, or maybe it's like singing in your head or hearing it in your imagination. And amazing things would happen when people would do that, that something would come into the playing that wasn't there before. And people were able to imitate the thing that they were imagining. They also sometimes couldn't imitate it, so then they knew they had some practicing to do so that they could be able to imitate it. And then there were also things like this. There was somebody who came to a lesson one time and he started by playing, I think it was an etude that he had played fine the week before, but wanted to polish it a little bit. And he could just barely put two notes together. He could, he just kept having to stop. He would get messed up. He was, could not move his mind through that music. And he had been able to play it. And he was baffled and frustrated. And I was baffled. I was really surprised. And so I said, well, uh, why don't you try this? Try hearing it first and then play it. So he sat there silently and listened to the music in his mind. 
And then he played it, and he played it straight through and made no mistakes. And something about that process, he thought, put him in a different frame of mind, that his his actual mental state when he was playing that second time was different from the first one. So we started joking around about way number one and way number two, like it was different mental states. And way number one was you look at the instructions and you try really hard to follow them correctly. Way number two was listen to the music in your head and imitate what you're hearing. And he said it felt really different to do those two things. And I'd had little experiences myself. I guess that's where this started, where I was trying to learn some passage that I couldn't play. And I would do all my practicing tricks. You know, I'd change the rhythm. I'd turn it upside down. I'd turn it inside out and backwards and slow it down and everything. And it didn't quite do what I wanted it to do. And then I would go, oh, yeah, maybe I should do the thing I always ask my students to do, which is to sing it. So I would try to sing it, and I could not sing the right notes. I was singing the wrong notes. So then I'd take five or ten or however many minutes it took to learn how to sing the right notes. And then I would pick up my bassoon, and I could play it just like that. Like, it was there, because I could hear it, presumably. I mean, I'm only guessing about why this works, but the thing that great about it is that it works. So um, sometimes people, when they try to hear it, they're not hearing it right. So there's going to be a fuzzy place in the thing they're hearing, and then it's going to be fuzzy in their playing. So then they have to stop, and they might actually have to sing it out loud and try to learn to sing the right notes, and then they'll be able to play it. That's been my experience so far. So it helps both with getting things accurate and being able to move your mind correctly through the material, but to me, it's even more exciting that it makes it into music. It makes it from a bunch of notes into music. And then people can deepen it. They keep listening to hear, well, were you satisfied? How else would you like to hear this sound? You can try it in different ways. And it's that's been fun for me. I mean, that's just really fun to hear somebody... Um, what to hear more heart come into their playing, to hear more expressive character come into their playing, more vividness, more intention. And as you both know, because you teach, there's a huge difference between the intention to get everything right and the intention to communicate something. Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of thing that keeps me interested. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. Um, could we close by hearing some advice that you have for a young musician who might aspire to have a career like yours? Well, the first advice is don't try to have a career like mine. Have a career like yours should be. So follow the things that are interesting to you. Follow what your heart responds to. Trust your intuition. Use your brain, too. I mean, use every part of yourself to... Um, to nourish and work with the things that excite you. So if you like writing music, then then write some music. Um, I guess I want to speak up for instinct because we live in a time where information and uh, sort of rationality are so emphasized. 
And I think instinct can really be helpful sometimes. Sometimes, sometimes like in the case of that silly little musical idea that I rejected for so long, I don't always pay attention at first or you don't even recognize it as being instinct. But learn to use that because I think it's trustworthy. Now, this is, okay, this is something people in our country don't agree about, but I believe that everybody has an inner compass and it's drowned out by a lot of other stuff. It's hard to hear what it's telling you. It's hard to see which way the needle is pointing. But if you can get quiet enough or clear away the, enough debris, you can begin to follow your inner compass and it's reliable. As we know, there's a big portion of our country that doesn't believe in that and believes that you must follow outside authorities or you'll fall into error. But I think the bigger error is to lose track of your inner compass. So, and that circles back to why I say, don't imitate me, imitate yourself. But of course, one way we find out what, what we like and what our intuition is pulling us toward is we find ourselves drawn to certain people or drawn to imitate certain people. So that's great to the, to the extent that it helps us to know what's exciting to us. Um, thank you so much for joining us on Double Read Dish. This was such a fortifying and engaging and fun conversation. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a, you know, I'm sure all of us feel the same way. It's so much fun to talk about myself. <laughs> Thank you for giving me that pleasure. <laughs> we know that you enjoyed that interview with John Steinmetz. Thank you so much for listening. Um, if you haven't already, follow us on social media, uh, rate and review on iTunes. It helps more people hear about what we are doing. And don't miss out on the next interview, which is coming up. Galit, who's that going to be with? Oh, we had an amazing conversation with Melanie Rothman, who is the newly appointed second oboist with the Bavarian Radio Orchestra. Jackie, it's time to end this nerd parade. Go make soup. <laughs> <laughs>